On the Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. My name is Francis Leach. My name is Sally Rugg and anything I say on the podcast may or may not re- represent the views of my employer. How are you, Sally? It's yeah. good to see you again. How was your Easter? Did you survive? Easter was great. I had a really lovely long weekend, um, ate a lot of chocolate. I said to my stepdaughter, because I did like a face mask the other day, which is sort of it's like charcoal colour all over my face. And she was like, what's that on your face? And I said, oh, when you're a grown up and you eat lots of chocolate, sometimes your face can like grow pimples afterwards. So I'm just like putting this face mask on to not get pimples. She was like, okay. And then yesterday <laughs> she looked at my face after I'd come out of the shower and just looks me up and down and goes, are they from the chocolate? <laughs> <laughs> How dare you? <laughs> Looking at my broken out skin. She was correct. She was right. It was oh, from the chocolate. Bless. It was from the chocolate. It's very, I find this year time of year very challenging. Because I, my friends at, at Hague's in Adelaide, very fine Australian establishment, makes very good chocolate. I mean, I basically have shares in the joint <laughs> throughout the year as it is because I spend so bl- much bloody money there. Hague's the- is really good with palm oil stuff. They're good just, for, yeah. They're just good. side note. Side note. Yeah, it's good. It's, and it's Australian made. It's, it's awesome. I, I'm a sad case. I've been to the factory tour. Okay, I've been on the chocolate <laughs> factory tour. That's how bad it is. So Easter is just a green light. Mm. It's just an enabling event for me. And, and your kids left home now, right? <laughs> they have. <laughs> Doesn't mean – but they were all they all came home for Easter, which is good. So okay, okay. I tend to buy lots of Easter eggs and just hope to pick up the scraps, mm. which I did. Yeah. I do get told off for, you know, incursions on, on the Easter bilby, which is sacred for Eve Marie, my daughter. I, I took the years. That, that's oh. one you can't hide. You know, it's, when the years are gone, she knows that I've been, I've been helping myself again. Yeah, it's a pretty integral part of the bunny. You know how they Bilby, have like, Bilby. you know, they have like, you know, Dry July. They have a non-chocolate June or something like, you know, <laughs> chocolate anonymous style thing. Do I need to do that? Anyway, that's how I'm survived. I survived. I did an extra session on the bike to try to. I don't know if that's really going to do the job, but um, I had to go at trying to work it off. I also love Easter because I love that everything is closed. Yeah, I think there's something special about not obviously not everybody, but a lot of people all having a day off together. I think that's very cool. Yeah, more of that I say. Once a week. It's not too much to ask, is it? It's not. No, geez not. A big program coming up in a little while. We are going to talk to Angela Bell from Ethical Clothing Australia because when you go shopping, sometimes sometimes you do in the back of your mind go, oh, that, that shirt is really cheap, but um, I bet if it's that cheap, that it hasn't been made in a way that I'd be happy with. So can you go out and buy good ethical clothing without spending a fortune? And the answer is yes, because the guys at Ethical Clothing Australia, Angela Bell, is going to tell us about their digital shopping map, which is helping people make ethical decisions when they go and get kitted up. I've used um, Ethical Clothing Australia's map. And for me, like last year and the year before, actually, you know, several years past, I've been trying to not buy new clothes, partly because of trying to save money and trying to create less waste and also just seeing if I can do it. And it's it's quite difficult. Well, particularly through lockdown, it, it was quite difficult because shops are really convenient. So yeah, her 
the, the Ethical Clothing Australia tool is really cool. So I'll talk more about that in a moment. But right now on the job, did you know that some people got filthy rich last year during the pandemic? No. You're about to find out because Mike Second from the uh, Saturday paper is going to tell us all about it right after this. It's on the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leighton, Sally Rugg with you. Sally, uh, tough year last year. Tough year. Why? What happened? Tough year for everyone. Uh, no jobs, no money, no nothing. Oh, oh, oh excuse me, not for everyone. <laughs> not for everyone. Some yeah, there were some, some real winners of the global <laughs> pandemic that saw enormous lockdowns, Waves of job losses, economies crashing. Um, yeah, some some real winners in the end. But they were already extremely well off and had done very well. We're talking about the Australia's billionaire class who have made out like bandits during the uh, the pandemic. And Mike Sikkim from the Saturday paper has been writing about this. He wrote this fantastic article in the last edition, uh, we got, uh, two Saturdays back when this goes to where, of the Saturday paper about Australia's billionaires who literally doubled their wealth while the rest of us were scraping the bottom of the barrel. And Mike joins us here on The Job. Hi, Mike. How are you going? Underslept and over-caffeinated, as I usually am on Friday, but but otherwise okay. How are you? I'm really well. Look, tell me how they did it, because on this podcast, we've been speaking to people all the way through about how hard it is to make crust at the moment, yet Twiggy and Gina and, and co have been uh, cashing in. They have indeed. In the case of Gina Reinhardt, she had a very good COVID year. You're, you're quite right. Her fortune more than doubled. In the end of February, it went from $16.25 billion dollars to $36.28 billion, so well over 100% gain. That is um, disgusting. Sorry <laughs> to interrupt, but like I, and again, sorry to be dramatic on the podcast, but that makes me feel quite ill. No, no, you're, you're right. They're extraordinary. I mean, I, I did a little bit of rough calculation, right? Her fortune grew by $20 billion over the COVID year. That would have paid the salary of 250,000 emergency care nurses for the year. So, you know, that puts it in some kind of context. She has as much net worth as 82,000 median Australian families. And if you're chucking her kids, they've got as much as 107,000 median Australian families. So, you know, it's, it's a lot of money. So, so anyway, that, that was Reinhardt. Andrew Forrest, of course, who's the chairman of Fortescue Metals and is another big iron ore miner. He also more than doubled his wealth from a bit over 13 to almost $30 billion. And um, Clive Palmer started at a lower base, poor Clive, started with 4.5 and ended the year with $9.76 billion. And to put that in context, Clive Palmer spent $83 million during the last federal election. That represented less than one week's income for him. So we're talking huge amounts of money. Uh, it makes um, me feel queasy to t- yeah. think about it. The question is how? How did they do it? Well, in, in the case of those three, it was just the luck of the markets, essentially. If you have a look at what happened to the iron ore price over the year, it went up by roughly the same amount as their wealth did. So it was just a matter of digging it up, shipping it out, and getting more money for it. You know, in the case of Gina Reinhardt, there's a lot of luck there. You know, first of all, she's lucky enough to be born to a man who was himself lucky enough to have a pastoral lease that just happened to have a lot of iron ore under it. And then the luck continued that they were mining iron ore at a time that the Asian economic miracle was taking place. China was building lots of infrastructure. They needed lots of steel, which required lots of iron ore which meant that it was a seller's market. So that's it. 
And in more recent times, of course, there have been other factors. You know, there, there were a couple of big mining disasters in Brazil, which is the world's second largest exporter of iron ore. So um, that worked to the advantage of the Australian billionaires too. So that was the case with the people who mined iron ore. Some of the other rich people did it in more creative ways, I guess you would say. The, the two founders of Atlassian, for example, who are, there's no doubt about it, you know, innovators, unlike iron ore miners, they also increased their wealth quite spectacularly. And a couple of property developers also did extremely well. So, you know, in the top 10, we've basically got a few tech companies a few resources companies and a couple of property developers. I apologise for editorialising a little on your article and your body of work here, but I think you're absolutely right when you say it's luck with these mining magnates. But it also is just like straight-up exploitation of natural resources that arguably belong to everybody in this country and but actually arguably belong to the First Nations people of this land, you know. So, you know, this is commonly referred to as stolen wealth. I've written about some of this in the past, about the land use agreements that some of these companies enter into with the, the traditional owners, which definitely have some dodgy aspects to them about exactly how much informed consent is given and that sort of thing. I wrote a bit about that at the time of the Duke and Gorge catastrophe. But you're right, there's a lot of luck a lot of luck involved. And I might add, I forget what the exact figure is, but if you recall, there was at one stage the Labor Party in, uh, to introduce a mining or did introduce a mining super profits tax, which was scrapped by the current government. So I don't know the exact figures, but I have seen them published. I we mean, the tax didn't make any have, money. Well, that's true. But at the time that it first came in, there was a bit of a, a resources slump. Had it been in the current context, it would have raised quite a lot of money. Not as much as it might have had it not been watered down, but it still would have raised a lot of money in the past year or so and didn't because it was scrapped. Mike, the wider issue is that what we're seeing here is that as the wealth of the well, less than 1%, the 0.5 or 1% grows exponentially, the inequality gap, gap is becoming bigger and bigger. And that is really dangerous for social cohesion. We know that. And I think it's acknowledged on you know, most sides of politics, except the sort of the far extremes of, of the Liberal Party and beyond, that that's not a good outcome for anyone, is it? And what can we do to address that? And what responsibility do these individuals have to try to be part of the solution, not just the beneficiaries of, of, a, of a gamed and fixed system? Those are the big and good questions. I mean, I, I don't know exactly how philanthropic these people are. Maybe they maybe they give some of their wealth away. I don't know. I mean, I know in the United States, for example, you have extraordinarily rich people like Bill Gates who are nonetheless use their wealth to some good ends and still remain quite rich. So there's that. But you're quite right. There is an issue around here of how some of this money can be clawed back for the taxpayer. And I don't, for example, for the last US presidential election, two of the candidates there, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, proposed that there should be higher taxes levied on the very wealthy. As I recall, it was they were going to put an extra 2% tax on the wealth, not the income, on the wealth of anyone with more than $50 million and 3% tax each year on the wealth of billionaires, which would have raised a lot of money. More recently, I think the Greens in Australia have proposed something similar. I think they were talking about a 6% wealth tax to apply to billionaires. So um, there's talk around about clawing it back in some way or other. Well, it's interesting because I wrote something on the International Monetary Fund, the IMF's uh, financial monitor report for the April quarter just released last week, which talked very specifically that countries like Australia with uh, complex and sophisticated tax systems 
have a responsibility, A, to have a rent resources or super profits tax on its natural resources, which is fundamental to most primary resource economies around the world. They do it, we don't. But also that those at the top end are taxed more significantly to make sure that the gap between the wealthiest and those that are struggling is reduced. Now, if the IMF is talking about it, hardly the vanguard of the revolution, the IMF, if they're talking about it, surely there's now some sense that there's not such a high political price to pay to actually go to an election with those sorts of policies. It seems to me, though, that given what happened last time, we don't have a political party that's willing to do that that can form government. I'll leave the editorialising to you, but I would note that in spite of the fact that Warren and Sanders didn't get up, if you have a look at what's been happening in both the UK and the US in recent times, in response to the sort of massive budget deficits that they've racked up during COVID, the UK has just increased its corporate rate of taxation and some personal rates of taxation with the aim of clawing back, I think it was something like £66 billion over the next five or six years. And the Biden administration has been even more ambitious. They've whacked up corporate taxes. I mean, not enormously, but they were 21% under Donald Trump. Biden's planning to push them up to 28%. And more interestingly, I think, he's also planning to stop them shifting profits offshore. This sort of merry-go-round that big corporates do of moving money around the world to low tax regimes, whereby the United States would tax at 21%, I think it is, any earnings offshore. And I think even more significantly this week, Janet Yellen, the, the Treasury Secretary, came out and suggested that the G20 nations should all be talking, are all talking, about imposing an international minimum rate of corporate tax, such as it would make it much, much harder for corporations to profit shift and avoid paying tax around the world. Everyone's now talking about it. The OECD's talking about it. The World Bank's talking about it. Janet Yellen's talking about it. So, you know, it may be we have a fair way yet to go, but it seems to me that the sort of trickle down, you know, look after the billionaires first and it will eventually benefit everyone economic thesis that has pertained since, you know, Reagan and Thatcher is finally coming under some significant challenge. Mm, I mean, let's hope so. That all sounds very promising. You mentioned Warren and Sanders and the discussion in the US predominantly around the election of uh, you know, a super wealth tax, a billionaire tax. And I remember watching from afar the reactions online predominantly from ordinary people freaking out that it would be somehow a tax on their own wealth. I mean, this is just anecdotal. This is just from what I saw. But what I witnessed was what seemed to be like a bunch of ordinary people really thinking that they could be billionaires, you know, to sort of like anytime soon um, something <laughs> could happen to them and they could become billionaires. You know, they felt far closer to billionaire status, you know, than homelessness, for instance, or, or rather marked poverty, which I think is such an interesting phenomena in America. And, I, you know, I'm thinking Kylie Jenner, the youngest of the Kardashian clan, was declared the youngest self-made billionaire. But then, you know, she was $100 million short. And so all of her fans, these are like predominantly teenage girls, launched a crowdfunding campaign oh. because they wanted Kylie to become a billionaire. They're like, let's help her get this extra hundred million. And so the reason I mentioned those two examples, because certainly in America, I think there is an aspiration to be a billionaire, which is totally bizarre. And I wonder if you see that in Australia 
Oh, look, I, I don't know if there's been any um, comprehensive research on this. I, I, having lived in America and Australia, I don't think it's nearly as prominent here. Let's say that for starters. I mean, America has this sort of central myth that anyone can make it in America, which is ironic because if you look at the facts about mobility, upward and downward social mobility in the United States, it's far lower than it used to be and far lower than it is in many other countries, including Australia. So it literally is a myth. So the fact that these people think that they can aspire to be Warren Buffett or or one of the Jenner's Kardashians or something is quite strange. I mean, just to put my personal opinion on the record, personally, I think that there is no way to be an ethical billionaire, which is not to say that people like, you know, the people that you mentioned earlier who aren't mining, not to say that they're like criminals or unethical or, or anything like that. But what I mean is I don't see any reason why an individual needs to hold that much wealth. You're quite right. What can you possibly do with that amount of money? I don't understand it myself. Nonetheless, you know, it has to be said, you know, Mike Cannon-Brooks is doing all sorts of interesting stuff on the sort of renewable energy front, just to give an Australian example, you know, Bill Gates. The fact that you're a billionaire doesn't necessarily mean you're a bad person. Of course. Um, I am, however, somewhat attracted to Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's great line that, you know, every billionaire is a policy failure. Because it's true, it's due to the current structure of our economy that people can accumulate so much wealth. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're bad people. It just means that the system is not working properly, you know. Mike, just to finish, I guess one of the things that we learnt from the rent resources tax that was basically crushed under the wheels of a mining magnate push through an advertising campaign and, and, and their political allies to make sure that it didn't succeed is that, and we saw this with Clive Palmer, you mentioned it, the political power of really rich people to influence elections and to actually uh, hold the political process hostage because they've got the financial capacity to do so. Is that the biggest challenge to real change, do you think? I think it's definitely something we have to address and I think it is being addressed. I think I think um, Queensland and possibly other states now have limits on how much can kick in. The Palmer campaign was just absolutely outrageous. Not not just because he had so much money to spend, but because he spent it basically on promulgating lies. One of the central themes was that there would be a death tax imposed if Labor got in. Now, Labor didn't propose a death tax. The Greens didn't propose a death tax. No one did. It was a straight-ahead lie. Although it didn't get any of Clive's people elected, it did direct a you know significant flow of preferences towards the conservative side of politics. And when Palmer says that his campaign ultimately got the Morrison government elected, I think it's actually a pretty credible claim on his part. I think that his spending probably helped him over the line. So there is tremendous power, political power, in just having a lot of money to throw around. Mike, great to talk to you, and we'll uh, read you again this Saturday in the Saturday paper. Thanks for being on the job. Oh, it was a great pleasure. Uh, anytime. This is On the Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd. And we're back on the job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Um, I'm just looking, I don't think, look, shamefully, I don't think I have any repurposed clothes on at the moment. So see these pants that I'm wearing? Yep. Are they repurposed? I'm currently wearing a sort of mustard and black checked, I guess they're like high-waisted pants. My pants are high-waisted, but probably not (laughs) intended to be. But I get a lot of compliments on these this pair of trousers. I've had them for about five years and I acquired them because about five years ago, a housemate I was living with let me wear them 
once. So you stole them. She was like, they look really nice on you. Like, feel free to just grab Ethical them. Ethical clothing is not stealing other people's clothes. Just want to bring that but to then, you. But then I wore them so much that I just sort of started keeping them in my room. And stole them. when I moved out, I was like, well, I'll just keep them with me because, you know, I'm just wearing them so much. And then sort of a year passed and then I got them taken in. Like I got them sort of altered. You stole them. Then you got them altered. So they could never, never be recognised again by their, I, their true owner. I think they're fully mine now. So thank you, Leah. Sorry for that. This is not what the new online directory map by Ethical Clothing Australia encourages you to do. It's just go steal your friend's clothes. But it's one way to do it. But it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating tool, this. So there are more than 300 locations on the map that help people who are serious about not wanting to buy sh- uh, sweatshop clothing or or buy clothing that is environmentally damaging or has been made in circumstances where people have been uh, you know, abused or have been used in slave labour to produce clothing. And when you go into one of the big department stores, you just don't know. There's, there's no signage. There's no indication. All it is is price, and you look at it and go, I like it, and it's sort of conscience-free because you're not thinking about it. This is a bit different, and I, I love this idea of having, if you are going to sort of walk the talk and, and try to be better when, you, when it comes to being a consumer, this is a great tool to do that. So let's catch up with Angela Bell from Ethical Clothing Australia to talk about how it works and why buying ethical clothes, not stealing them from your friends, <laughs> buying ethical clothes is a good idea. Hi, Angela. How are you going? Well, thank you. Fair assessment, isn't it, that when we go out to buy stuff, we look at the price, we look at what we want and go, if it's cheap and it looks like the stuff I want, I'm going to go and take it to the counter and buy it. I'm not really thinking about who made it or how. Yeah, that's correct. And you know who's responsible for that? Fash fashion um, companies, major conglomerates that have created an industry where we expect clothes to be cheap, we expect them to be disposable, and basically what it's trained all of us to do is to yeah pay less for our clothing, wear it less, and throw it away more often, which is not benefiting in any way the workers involved in the process. It's not at all obviously having you know impacts in other areas like the environment, and ultimately when you not paying a true cost someone is making money and those fashion companies are but the workers involved are not often they're being exploited particularly you know overseas and in Australia and there's you know other sorts of abuses going on as well in global fashion supply chains and so it is particularly important yeah I think we're lucky that there is a growing interest in ethical fashion and and what that means and there's certainly been some events that have led consumers to sort of look closer at the issues and of course at the heart of that is the Rana Plaza collapse. Tell people about that. Yeah, so that was in 2013 and basically there was more than 1,200 workers, garment workers, lost their lives in the collapse of a factory building there. In Bangladesh. In Bangladesh. And many thousands more were injured. And what was revealed through that was these fast fashion, not even just fast fashion, I think some major, probably even luxury brands that uh, had been sourcing their products being made overseas and that the conditions that the workers were in were obviously um, deplorable. In fact, the workers had raised issues and concerns and had been forced back to work in the building. And that was a bit of a hallmark moment um, to wake everyone up. Of course, these things still continue. There was just 20 people lost their fires, uh, sorry, lost their lives in a fire just overseas in Egypt about a week ago. So in, in the garment workers. So these things continue, these tragedies continue. But Rana Plaza was an event that really shook everyone. And, you know, it 
resulted in the Bangladesh Accord being created over there, but also made many, even brands and some of the ones we work with sort of say, what am I doing? What role am I having in this industry and how can we do it better? How have you been able to then set up a regime where you can monitor what's on the rack, where it's come from and whether it's ethical? Yeah, so our organisation actually later this year will be celebrating 21 years. So we were born far before Rana Plaza collapsed and we were created in Australia at a time when there was a huge upheaval in the local industry. There was a lot of offshoring and there was a lot of changes from going to having big factories where, you know, one employer and a lot of workers making one product for different companies to really outsourcing and the use of home workers as well as in Australia. Now, what happened amongst that time of disruption was increases in exploitation and supply chains also allow for that hidden workforce, particularly, as I said before, with the use of home workers, particularly a lot of them were new migrants to Australia. So at that time, over 20 years ago, the union was raising these issues. They were running legal cases here in Australia. They were also, you know, raising it amongst the public in terms of media stories showing the exploitation, workers crammed in sweatshop conditions in Australia. They won some rights for home workers, but they also, I guess, you know, created a lot of agitation in the industry. But what happened was that businesses who were doing the right thing came to the union and basically said, you know, it's not great that everyone's being tarnished here. There's some of us who value our workers. We're doing the right thing, paying them properly, providing safe conditions, etc. And so what can we do? And the idea of an accreditation program was born from that. The program we have here is incredibly unique. There's nothing with the same rigour around the globe and there's a lot of envy around that. And I think the fact that it's still going is testament to its foundations. But what's at the core of it is we work with the Textile, Clothing and Footwear Union. They're our auditors and they're now part of the CFMEU Manufacturing Division, to be technical. But they go out and do the auditing on our behalf. And, and it's not just um, that we the union's involved in that, but it's also the fact that it's in a business's entire supply chain. So when it comes to the accreditation program and a business sticks up its hand, and we've got some of the original businesses that got accredited with us still accredited with us. It's a yearly renewal that they have to go through. We go out with the union, or well, the union auditors go out compliance officers and their outreach officers who also can speak Vietnamese and Chinese go out, do the checks around pay, we go out and do the checks around entitlements, do the checks on safety and then if any issues are identified, which they commonly are, they must be fixed and rectified for a business to be accredited with us but that's through their entire supply chain. So if they've got an embroiderer or a screen printer that they're using, that screen printer is going to be checked as well. Are they paying their workers properly? Are they working in safe conditions and are they getting their entitlements? And only when matters are fully addressed, and that's a very big simplification of the process, then that principal company can be accredited and they're accredited for their supply chain. Which is what a lot of people want. So notionally, a lot of people will say, yeah, I want to buy ethical clothing and I want to make sure that what I'm wearing reflects my values. I'm not down with the idea of paying workers a pittance to to make stuff or having them work in sweatshops where their lives are at risk. But how do I identify when I'm in a shop that something is ethically made? Yes, so when a business is accredited with us, they get to use the Ethical Clothing Australia trademark and they can actually put that commonly on the swing tags associated in store or they might put it on the um, tag at the back of the shirt. So I would encourage people to look out for the ECA accreditation swing tag. But also if you go to our website, there's a huge amount of information on there about how you can shop ethically or if you're also someone who buys uniforms in your workplace, you can also find local manufacturers who can make those uniforms. We have such 
such a range of businesses accredited with us. You can get socks, <laughs> you can get your sleepwear, children's wear, and obviously women's fashion. But then we do have manufacturers who can also make those uniforms, PPE, face masks, as was you know desperately required during COVID. So a whole range of products that can be made locally and are ethically accredited. So that's at ethicalclothingaustralia.org.au is the website. Angela... What sort of percentage of the market out there, I mean, a huge clothing market, would you say we see ethical clothing actually being available? Is it still a fairly niche approach to things or is it starting to spread out to the wider and bigger conglomerates who maybe are being held to account more about their supply chains? Yeah, so in terms of what ECA covers, there's no information in terms of hard information on the, on the size of the local industry and, and it has declined in recent years, but we think that's absolutely stabilised and if anything, our accreditation body, um, the number of accreditations is growing. We grew something by like 60% in the last year, which is very heartening. In terms of the bigger industry, businesses are increasingly looking obviously at their ethics, they're looking at the sustainability overall, but what consumers have to be really careful of is that whitewashing, greenwashing, that they're not just saying, you know, calling themselves ethical, what's the credentials that are behind it? So if something's being made offshore, then you would be a case of, you know, you might want to say, to the business or in the retail store, can you tell me something about where these clothes are made? Is there anything in terms of how they were made? You know, who made the clothes is a common catch. So basically, yeah, asking that is really important in terms of holding those businesses account. But looking for an independent certification is far more important than just taking, you know, a company's word at it. What about the digital shopping map that you've developed? It's an app that people can use when they're out shopping. Tell us how that works. Yeah, so basically this is available on our website as well. And we just launched this as part of, uh, yeah, recent Melbourne Fashion Festival. It's basically a Google map. So you can go on, have a look, put in your postcode, your address and find out where you can buy ECA accredited clothing. So it'll show you where the shops are that near you that actually sell ethical clothing. Absolutely. And you can search by brand. So if you know there's a particular brand that you want to buy from, you can put it in, you'll find out your closest store to you as well. So we're really excited by that. And it, yeah, it's only sort of a couple of weeks old, but we're desperately wanting to spread the word. The other thing we've just done, which was a result of Melbourne Fashion Festival, but we launched our first ever photographic exhibition. It's also, it's been taken down, but it's available now on online for anyone to go on and view and what we've done through that we've gone through the making of a dress that was made in Melbourne locally ethically and we've drawn out every stage every person involved in the making of that dress It's a bit of an education piece as well to help people understand the reason you know around the true cost of clothing but also the people the talent the skill that goes into the making of a garment let's take that as an example then so uh, in terms of the supply chain of a dress how many hands does it pass through to, before it's you know, in your hands at the counter ready to be paid for. Yeah. And look, every single dress is going to be different yep. as well. Depending give us an on, example yeah. of one. Yes, yes. No, that's the thing, I guess, that, you know, the, the guesswork that ECA takes away. It doesn't matter whether it's one or it doesn't matter if it's 20. You can you can be sure that those involved, their workers' rights have been upheld. But, you know, the example we gave was around, I think, 12 hands involved. We had, you start off with the design, you know, and people who do design have technical skills, years of experience. There's some work and 
involved in that. There's the fabric selection. There's sometimes works on patterns that are involved. Then there's sampling. Then there's pattern cutting and grading. Then there's actually work in terms of the making, like the actual makers who are cutting, sewing, um, putting the outfit together. You know, if there's technical aspects involving pockets or other, you know, some things can be quite creative and technical and then it goes through to you know quality assurance and then dispatch right at the end so our accreditation program covers from design through that process you cut make trim pattern making everything else to dispatch and all those workers involved in that in the entire supply chain. Angela in terms of the local industry and local jobs has it been hard for the clothing manufacturing industry to survive because of that offshoring uh, to those sorts of factories where sweatshop labour makes the cost per unit so cheap that actually making clothing ethically here in Australia is just economically not viable. How do you counter that? Yeah, look, we're very fortunate. We've, with the businesses we work with have remained committed to manufacturing. And even we did a survey with them last year with COVID to check in around how things were going. And we got a result of like 100% who did the survey saying they remain committed to being here. So they don't want to offshore. They don't want to get into that pricing measure. They don't want to negotiate on their ethics. So they remain to be here. But of course, it does mean it's a smaller niche market as you sort of described before. So, and I think what the other thing about the business that we work with is that they're doing good for their workers they're also doing good in other areas they're giving back to the community they might have other programs they're looking at the fabrics they're using they're looking at the environment as well so it is a highly you know highly competitive world the fashion industry and even just manufacturing clothing you know it is a tough one but we're fortunate with those we work with that they um, are committed to being here but also we've definitely had conversations and signs from people that with COVID and the difficulties around overseas supply chains and reliance on them and the fact that they can be cut off instantaneously that there's many brands are looking to return to onshoring what we call but also you know there's this term going around about right shoring so what's the right mix of um if you you know do make offshore but maybe you'll you'll come back to making some clothing onshore as well and just to finish the idea that we i was interested at the start you talked about the idea that we throw our clothes away too quickly is there a a role in ethical clothing to make sure that we reuse our clothing not at eca so in terms of what we do we are very much worked on labor and the workers involved and that's where the skills and expertise are but the individual companies and the businesses that we work with have got a whole range of different initiatives that they do so one this week is just released even just their packaging is a new form of packaging that can be returned it's there's you know obviously recyclable compostable packaging now that some of our brands are using and then there's various um, recycling things that they do so a lot of our businesses will do repairs so I've got my jeans I've had them stitched up the other day so I can you know keep wearing them so there is a lot of planned obsolescence for so long has been part of the business model you wear it you use it you get rid of you've got to buy some new stuff yes that's right and this is kind of this is definitely the businesses we work with a bit more on the slow fashion side of things you're investing more like it is you know it can be an expensive it is an expense to invest in a higher quality product, but it is going to last you longer. You're going to value it more. You're going to look after it more. You're going to get it repaired rather than throw it away. And that's the beauty of it. And, you know, if it is tough for people around affordability, you can look at other things, you know, complement it with op shop clothing. Uh, there's upcycling now. You can also do other things like rent clothing. So there's a whole range of measures that you can take to make your wardrobe ethical. And if you want to buy new and you want to support local businesses, 
and you can, you know, shop via the ECA website and find out, you know, who you can support there. Thank you for coming in, Angela. Angela Bell, National Manager, Ethical Clothing Australia. Go to the website, ethicalclothingaustralia.org.au and uh, you can find out, there's the FAQ there, which will give you all the rundown on, and all these sort of questions you want answered. But also that digital map again sounds like a, such a great idea. That's up there on the website as well. It is. So please have a look. Angela, thanks for being on the job. Thank you. On the Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rung. Angela Bell from Ethical Clothing Australia on uh, their fantastic new app and, and map which uh, will help you shop ethically when you go out buying new clothes. And that's it for another edition of On The Job. Good fun again, Sally. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. Catch Sally at Sally Rugg on Twitter. Uh, We'd love to uh, have your review on whatever platform you're listening on uh, to give us uh, the opportunity to reach more people so that they too can find out how to steal clothes. And um, we will catch you next week on The Job. Bye. Bye.